Around the world, the last great message of the Creator is being carried with the mighty power of His enabling Spirit. Millions in Russia, America, Africa, Australia, and 200 other countries are saying yes to Christ, where the people once languished in the valley of the shadow of death. The light of the everlasting gospel is now shining. John and Beverly Carter, whose calling has led them to minister in many countries, now invite you to join them for an exciting hour of discovery. As the Word of God brings hope in despair, light in darkness, meaning in confusion, joy in sorrow, and life in death. just want to tell you today, friend, about one of the most exciting projects I've ever been involved in. Because of a multitude of circumstances, we are being forced to go a little further in the preaching of the gospel. We are going to purchase a property in Arcadia. The city wanted this property for a cultural center, but God has opened the doorway for us to buy it. And we're closing escrow about, I think it's March 20. And so in this church and in the Carter Report ministry, we are moving ahead to raise the money. We're doing this so that we can turn this place in Arcadia into an evangelistic center with the support of Three Angels Broadcasting Network, Danny and Linda Shelton. We'll be able to do things that we have never been able to do before, such as produce television programs for Russia, Ukraine, and other parts of the world. And this is just a little bit that I'm telling you about today. Danny and Linda, Beverly and I and the rest of our teams are going to have a special program on Three Angels Broadcasting Network, Saturday afternoon, February 5. Pacific time will be 3 p.m., 3 until 4. Central time will be 5 o'clock till 6. And Eastern time will be 6 o'clock right through until 7 o'clock. This is going to be a, a first for 3ABN and a first for us. It's going to be a live uh, uplink and downlink. In other words, it'll be a little bit like CNN where we'll be able to talk to Danny and Linda and they'll be able to talk to us. And we'll be talking about the tremendous possibilities of this program as we go ahead and in faith establish an evangelistic center right here in Los Angeles. And so join Danny and Linda, Beverly and me and our teams, join the Carter Report and the three ABN teams on February 5, Saturday afternoon for a live program from Los Angeles and from Illinois because it's going to be a downlink and an uplink. It's going to be the most interesting thing. Time is going to be 3 o'clock here Pacific time. Danny's time or central time is 5 o'clock in the afternoon. New York time or Eastern time is 6 o'clock. So join us for our live 3ABN Carter Report program. This coming Saturday, February 5, join us Saturday afternoon. And God bless you. A wife, frustrated with her husband's bad habits, bought him a ticket to a self-improvement seminar. When she got home, she found him reading the paper. She told him she had bought a ticket for a self-improvement seminar being held the next week. 
Without looking up from his newspaper, he said, which day are you going? <laughs> Isn't that just like a husband? But in all honesty, I think the wife needed to go as well. In a recent Newsweek magazine, there was an article on these self-help seminars that are conducted by self-improvement gurus who collectively raked in over $2.5 billion last year. Is this self-help fervor something new? No, it certainly is not. The article says, since colonial times, Americans have devoured success literature. In 1732, Benjamin Franklin helped to start it all by writing a book on how to be a success. Another notable motivator was Dahl Carnegie, who in 1936 wrote the bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People. In 1952, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which became one of history's biggest selling books, and Dr. Peale was the one who coined the phrase, practice an attitude of gratitude. Today we have Anthony Robbins, John Gray, Stephen Covey, and others who are amassing fortunes that rival those of Hollywood moguls. We Christians believe that God helps those who help themselves. There is nothing wrong with trying to improve oneself. Some of these books and seminars can help us to break bad habits and develop good habits. For instance, time management, stress management, money management seminars can be very helpful in enabling one to lead a more productive life. While some self-help books and programs are built on Christian principles, many are not. Some self-help gurus shout out, think win, win, win. And I wonder, win what? Mm -hmm. Win the lottery? Win the most amount of money? Win the highest position in the land? Wanting to be my best is different from wanting to be the best which can and often does lead to greed and selfishness. A Christian's motive for wanting to do one's best is to glorify God with one's life and then to make a meaningful contribution to the human race. What do we want on our tombstones? Here lies the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most self-improved person in the world. Or here lies one of the most kindest, decent and loving people who ever lived. The self-help gurus may be able to help with the first inscription, but only God can make the second one possible. A couple of years ago, I attended a motivational seminar here in Los Angeles. The main speakers were Larry King, Zig Ziglar, Mrs. Debbie Fields, the cookie lady, and Charlton Heston. While I gained something helpful from all these speakers, for me, the most impressive moment came at the close of the day when the coordinator, a wealthy businessman himself, came out to speak to us. I don't remember his exact words, but in summary, it was something like this. We should all aim to be the best we can be. I want to be, and he is, a success in my business. But more importantly for me is to be a successful human being. I discovered many years ago that this can only happen when Jesus Christ lives in my heart. And so he closed the day with this beautiful testimony. I could sense that many in the audience felt more than a little uncomfortable, but some of us joined together in a hearty amen. 
The most important book in how to be a successful human being is this book, the Bible. It will not only enlighten, enlarge, and enrich our hearts and our minds, but it will help do what no self-help book can do. This book will help us to get to heaven. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. My topic today is better than Wall Street and safer than a bank. Isn't that a good topic? Took me a long time to think about that, so you better enjoy the talk today. Better than Wall Street and safer, say it with me, better than Wall Street and safer than a bank. Would you please come with me to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. And everybody turn to the texts, please. Matthew chapter 6, this is the key text. Matt, we're going to have some other texts, but this is the key text. This is the theme text. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 and onwards. 19 down to 21. Have you got it? Matthew 6 verse 19 and onwards. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus said, I'm going to give you a plan, a plan which is so wonderful that in fact we discover today it is better than Wall Street and safer than a bank. I have a copy here of one of the latest editions of USA News and World Report. And you gentlemen can bring the camera in close so they can see this. The year in photographs. And uh, you know, this is, this is a really hot issue. Outlook 2000, a new age of innovation, breaking the genetic code, bold ideas from big thinkers. And uh, this is an amazing page. If you could just look at this, this is the genetic code. You know, they've broken the genetic code. Absolutely wonderful and amazing. They have broken the genetic code. How could anybody think this code just made itself? They've taken years and years and years to work it out with all the money that they could get together, all the scientists, but they're, they're They've broken the genetic code. And this page is Outlook 2000, Inventing the Future, a gene-based cure for cancer, quantum computers, and uh, it talks about some of the wonderful things that they're planning to do. You see, through the manipulation of the genes, which has become today a possibility, scientists believe that soon there'll be a cure for cancer. And some are even hoping for a cure for old age, so they'll be able to take the silver hair and turn it back into gold without the use of a bottle that some of you folks are very familiar with. <laughs> they have plans to increase our well-being. What is more, they hope one day that they will have a cure not only for old age, but that they will have a cure for 
death itself. And then they are speculating with some scientific certainty that the day will come soon when men will leave planet Earth and visit Mars and then on to the stars. But may I remind you that although some of these things are doable, some of them are very uncertain. They're simply dreams. But I want to tell you today that God has got a plan that's big and bold and marvelous, and it is more than a dream. God has a plan to cure cancer and every other disease. He has a plan to eliminate the aging process. He has a plan to turn the silver back into the golden dreams, back into the gold. And he has a plan, my friend, to abolish death. And that is something no scientist in this world will ever do because life is in the hands of God. But the day is going to come when our great God, my friend, is going to abolish old age and he's going to abolish death. And he's going to make each one of his children wonderfully wealthy. And he's going to lift them off this planet and take them through the solar system and into outer space past the stars to a place that is called paradise. Something, my friend, uh, wonderful, something infinitely more important than the boldest of God's plans. I want you to know today, listen to me, you who think you know it all. You who think that this world is the sum total. You who think that Wall Street is the only thing. Let me tell you, that's nothing. God has got a plan to lift his people out of sin and darkness and disease and death and to make them all millionaires in the kingdom of God. God's plan to redeem the human race, my friend, is the greatest plan. His plan to redeem the human race through the preaching of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ who died to save us. If you are not consummated by this plan, you are selling yourself dreadfully short and living an incomplete life. If you think the world revolves around Wall Street, I want you to know today the plan of God is out of this world. Jesus said... The words that everybody seems to know. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the greatest of all plans. These plans of men are of small consequence compared with the plan of God. Think of this text, John 3, 16. For God, for God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company that he gave, the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, that whosoever believeth, Believeth the greatest simplicity anybody can believe in him. The greatest attraction should not perish. The greatest promise, but the greatest difference. 
have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Amen. If you have that, you have the greatest. I listened to a man who would be president of the United States. He is a man who is putting up buildings in New York City who has been trumpeting his own greatness. <laughs> but I want Donald Trump and the rest of his colleagues to know that what he's got is a poor, shabby little show compared with the plan of Almighty God. And any poor, simple, little child of God is light years ahead of the Donald Amen. when that person knows the Christ of Calvary. Don't you forget it. We have the greatest. We're talking about the greatest work in the world. We're talking about the greatest enterprise. Now listen to this, elders of the church. Listen to this, deacons of the church. Listen to this, church members. Listen to my, listen, my viewers on 3ABN and the other networks. Listen to this because this is the truth. Listen, the greatest work is not Wall Street. It is the gospel work. The greatest work demands the greatest thought, the greatest planning, the greatest commitment, the greatest action, the greatest giving. Oh, I get heartily sick of the attitude of some church members, even here in this church who think if they're doing something for God and his church, they're giving God a favor. I want you to know, my friend, that the best thing that ever happened to you was when you came to Christ and you can never do enough for Christ. Amen. And this attitude that says, yes, I will do it. I'm doing the church a favor. I'm doing God a favor is a base act of degeneracy. Hear it? A base act of degeneracy. The greatest work demands the greatest thought, the greatest planning, the greatest commitment, the greatest action, the greatest giving. As some of you folks know, I admire Winston Churchill. I've read in copious volumes of his writings. I can think of the great cause of defending and saving democracy from the Nazis. Some of you know about this. When all the world appeared to be going the way of the Nazis and one little nation colored in red, the British islands, Great Britain stood alone against the world. Without the help of the great United States that was standing back. And a man stood before the people and he said, in his pugnacious style, I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, and tears. And we will fight on the beaches, we will fight on the landing fields, we will never surrender. And then this spirit swept across the Atlantic and the president of this country got caught up in that holy cause to defend democracy. 
People have given their lives by the millions to defend democracy, which is a holy and a righteous cause. I want to tell you, the kingdom of God is greater than that. And all the church needs today, men and women who will rally to the cause of the gospel of God, like the British soldiers and the American soldiers did in the Second World War, who will gather around the banner. I say I am disgusted with the attitude of some even in the walls of this church. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's always secondary. What do I do for Christ? Always secondary. I hear about preachers in some congregations, they're so lazy. They don't even bring a Bible to church. They don't visit the flock. They don't care. I tell you, my friend, the cause that is represented here today is the cause of the kingdom of God. And it is the greatest cause in the world. And it demands the greatest thought, the greatest planning, the greatest commitment, the greatest action, the greatest giving. And I say away with this insipid Christianity that has no response to the claims of Christ. My talk today is about the plan that is better than Wall Street and safer than a bank. I would remind you today that everything earthly is temporary, insecure, and transient. Death and decay in all around I see. You know the hymn. Death and decay in all around I see. O thou that changest not. Abide with me. One thing is eternal, and that is God, the kingdom. I want to talk about an investment plan whose dividends, I quote, are out of this world. A safe plan, a secure plan, an eternal plan, which will never, 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 never crash. Now this talk is going to change your life. I can promise you that. I was in New York City at the Stock Exchange in 1987 when the Stock Exchange collapsed or crashed. I will never forget the pandemonium. I thought it was just business as usual. I said, boy, they're energetic today. The pandemonium, the panic. But I want you to know, my friend, that God's plan will never crash. Much of the financial world is built upon sinking sand. The great explosion of the stock exchange, though we applaud it, is a paper fiction. It is a paper fiction. It is built upon blind faith, speculation, and greed, and fictitious assets. But God's plan is gilt-edged. It is solid. It is secure. It pays dividends for all eternity where moth and rust do not corrupt. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust and the IRS do not corrupt. 
How? How can I lay up treasures in heaven? Firstly, by tithing. Are you saying, by tithing? Is that a part of the kingdom of God? Is that a part of God's plan? You had better believe it. Tithing is a part of the kingdom of God. I want you to take your Bible, turn here to Leviticus 27 and verse 30. Leviticus 27 and verse 30. In fact, I believe the fever I had for five days has made me feel stronger and bolder. And I'm back today. Mm, I have returned to gaze you in the eye. (laughs) And I can see Dan is back also. (laughs) He has returned. Leviticus 27 verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land where the grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it. The Bible says, a tithe of my house, a tithe of my car, a tithe of my bank account, a tithe of everything I own is not mine, it belongs to God. And the Bible tells me that I am to lay up treasure in heaven by investing in the kingdom of God. Firstly, but not lastly, by tithing. Come over here to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and onwards. Malachi 3, 8 and onwards. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. The Bible says tithes and offerings. I want you to know this is not the word of John Carter. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible says, don't lay up treasures on this earth, lay up treasures in heaven. And the Bible says that the tithe, everything we own, one-tenth is a part of the kingdom of God. It belongs to God. I uh, went back to Australia, as you know, a couple of months ago. And while I was there, I went and visited my father's grave. I hadn't, hadn't been back since he was buried. And uh, my sister and my mother came with me, and my sister sent me these photos. Get, see if you get a camera in. There's my, my old mum. She's 92, going strong, fights me as strongly as ever, uh, corrects my theology, and she's got a mind like a rapier. There's my mother and my older sister, Patricia. And uh, this is my father's tombstone. I sat there on a Sabbath afternoon I thought about my dad in loving memory of James T. Carter. I hadn't been back there 
since he was buried. That was almost 15 years ago. And I can remember the time. <clears throat> My father was a rather wild Irishman. You and I know about this, Rendell. My father was brought up in the great Roman Catholic Church. He was an altar boy when he was a kid. His folks came from Ireland. He knew a lot about religion, but he didn't know a lot about Christ. And by the grace of God, one night I was preaching down a Byron Bay camp meeting in North New South Wales, which is to be distinguished from South New South Wales. But I was preaching at the camp meeting, and my father came. By the grace of God, he came. And I made an altar call. I preached that night on by grace alone. We can't be saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone. And my old Irish Roman Catholic father stood up in the meeting and responded. And some months later, my father was baptized. And I can remember sitting on the front lawn with my father after his baptism. It was a summer's day. And Beverly and I and the kids had driven up, I think, from Mwollumbar or somewhere. And I was sitting there with my father, and my dad said to me, Well, John, I want to do this right. He said, I want to do it right. I tell you, I thank God that he wanted to do it right. In his old Bible that my mother showed me at, after the funeral, he'd written in the front of his Bible, Dear Lord, help me to do my best. I want to do it right. He said, John, I want to do it right. He said, Show me how to tithe. So I sat down and showed him how you worked it out. He was on the pension. He didn't have, a, didn't have a lot. But until his dying day, he tithed. When he got too sick to go to church, every Sabbath he set aside his tithe. And every three months, the deacon would come, allow, come around from Central Church in Brisbane and pick up my father's tithe. That's the mark of a saved Christian. The Bible says tithing is a part of the kingdom of God. And the Bible says if we are withholding our tithe, we're stealing from God. Pretty strong language. You know, I know some people don't like straight sermons. They don't want to hear the truth. I'm just sorry about that because I'm dedicated to preach the truth. And uh, I just want you to know that tithing is expected of you. It's a part of your Christian duty. And if you're t stealing from God, you owe God not only your tithe, you've got to add 20%. That's what the Bible says. You say, well, I, I don't care about this. Well, you're not dealing with me today. You're dealing with Almighty God, and you're going to face it in the judgment. Amen. Tithing is a part of the plan of God. Listen, uh, when I look up at the cross where God's great steward suffered loss of life and shed his blood for me, a trifling thing it seems to be to pay a tithe, dear Lord, to thee. You know why I believe in tithing? Why Beverly and I tithe? It is because of what Christ has done for me. How can I say that I belong to Christ and that I love Christ and steal from him? In tithes and the Bible says in offerings. When I have paid my tithe, I've only started. Did you hear that? When you put your tithe in, you've only just started because the tithe doesn't even belong to you. You don't even have a say in that, friend. Amen. The tithe doesn't belong to you. You don't start to do anything until you start to give your offerings. 
offerings to support the greatest work in the world, to build churches and Christian television stations like 3ABN. I want to say to the people who are watching the program on 3ABN, you can't put your money in a better place than 3ABN. God raised up 3ABN. He raised up Danny and Linda Shelton. When the church wasn't doing anything, God raised them up. And you can't do anything better with your money than to put it into 3ABN unless you put it into the Carter Report. <laughs> but I want to say to everybody watching, support 3ABN. Support Danny. Support Linda. We ought to put offerings into evangelism. We ought to send missionaries. We ought to build Christian schools. Now I have some friends up in Minneapolis. God has blessed them with money. He's blessed them with more than money though. He's blessed them with a willing heart. I've heard people say, oh, they're wealthy. They ought to do it. Hey, we all ought to do it. A lot of wealthy people who don't do it, my friend. But these people have made a mission field of Bangladesh. Bangladesh, they've gone there and they are building hundreds of Christian schools. What are they getting out of it? What are they getting out of it? They're getting out of it the satisfaction of knowing that they're building the kingdom of God. That's what they're getting out of it. And many of us here have never come to the place where we've had the satisfaction of building the kingdom of God. Somebody said we ought to give until it hurts. No, we ought to give until it feels good. There's a great joy in giving until it feels good. You know, we're buying this property. <laughs> Why are we buying this property? Why am I leading out on this? Because I have an urge to do it. No, I don't want any more burdens. I'd like to retire on a desert island and suck coconut milk all day long. <laughs> that would suit me fine and get rid of my cell phone and get rid of every other phone and throw the television over the cliff. That would suit me fine. <laughs> suit me fine. I'd like it. Sit out in the sun and grow fat. <laughs> Listen, I want to tell you why we're building this place. It is to build the kingdom of God, not to build my kingdom. Amen. And when you come to me and pass me offerings, don't think that I owe you anything. Any more than I owe you anything. We are building together the kingdom of God. It is the greatest privilege. It is the greatest work in the world. And it can only be done when our hearts are motivated by the love of God. I commend Garwin and Merrily for the work they're doing in Bangladesh because people who give like this are storing up treasures in heaven. Now I want you to know something. God is no person's debtor and God pays rich dividends on the money we put into the kingdom of God, into the work of God. Would you come over here with me to Deuteronomy 28? Now, folks, I have committed myself to preach the truth. I haven't committed myself or dedicated myself to entertain you or to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. I've dedicated myself to preach the truth and by the grace of God to get you into the kingdom. Amen. Is that all right, Patricia? All right. Deuteronomy 28. 
If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. And then it goes on and it talks about how God is going to bless you when you come in. He's going to bless you when you go out. I want to tell you today, poverty for the people of God is not his will. Now some people think that there's some inherent piety in being poor. Now there are some people poor through no circumstance, through no fault of their own. But I want you to know, God wants to lift his people through the blessings of God onto higher ground. That's the plan of God for your life. God wants to bless you when you go out. He wants to bless you when you come in. He wants to bless your food. He wants to bless your children. He wants to bless you. The Bible says it. Now let me tell you a little theology because it doesn't hurt on occasions to have a little theology. These promises are for God's people today. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. The promises of the kingdom of God in Deuteronomy and other passages of the Bible have been given to the people who are obedient to the terms of the covenant. And if you turn to God, and if you obey his word, God is going to bless you. I want to tell you folks, I've had a tremendously difficult time over buying this property. I mean, who needs it? Who needs the worry? But God is just, just rolling along and he's taking over and people are responding and God is blessing us. And I want you to know that God will bless you if you are faithful in your tithes and generous offerings. It is not so much you give that counts, it's what you have remaining in your bank account. When that little boy came to me a couple of Sabbaths back and said, Pastor Carter, for the Evangelism Center, that's all he had. He gave everything he had. That is the widow's might. It's not so much what you give, it's what you keep for yourself. And God says, I will bless you. Now let me tell you a story. You know Mr. Mack. Well, over the last 10 years, he was the man who was largely responsible for my coming here. Over the last 10 years, he has passed me a million dollars or more. What have I done with it? It's gone to Russia. It's gone to pay for our programs and television. Has it benefited me one cent? I've said to him, Charles, when you give this, it's not to me. He says, I know it. I say, Charles, it's for Jesus. It's for the kingdom of God. And I want to tell you something else, seeing I'm letting off a little steam here today. There's no person I despise more than the preacher, the television evangelist, the professionist, professional religionist 
who uses the blood of Christ to fill his own pockets. That has happened, it happens everywhere. People become rich through the tears of Christ. And he said to me, yes, I've given you a million. He's built churches in Russia with that money. But he said to me, John, everything I've given you has come back with interest. He said, I don't have any less now. That's why I can help you with the Arcadia property. And he will, because the more he gives, the more God gives back. Now some of us here don't know anything about this because we are simply pew Christians. We don't have a lot of faith. We've never, some of us have never done anything great for God in our lives and our lives are consumed by selfishness and greed. I want to challenge you today to walk out of the water and by faith to do something great for God. Like HMS Richards. HMS Richards was about to launch a program and uh, the accountant said, Brother Richards, we can't do it. There's no money in the bank. He said, I believe in faith, Elder Richards, but you've got to have money in the bank. HMS Richards said anybody can have that sort of faith. Faith is not going forward when you've got everything covered. Faith is believing in the God who can do impossible things. He can do it for 3ABN, he is. He can do it for the Carter Report, he is. And he can do it for you. But some of you need to get off your tails and walk out in the water and put your faith into practice. Would you come over here, please, to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, we're going to notice verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever gives generously will also reap generously. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God says, as a man sows, so shall he reap. You know my background. As a boy out of college, I went to the vast outback of Australia where they feed a lot of the world with wheat. I've seen the harvest. I've seen wheat piled higher than this church, even higher than our new church, and that's high. I've seen it piled up because people had faith to sow the seed. Sometimes the reason we live in poverty and in selfishness and in despair is because we do not invest in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven. Our reward is in heaven. Listen to this. This is going to stun you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by our works. But listen, our reward is according to works. 
The Bible says they were judged every man according to their works. And Jesus talks about the reward. He says, I'm coming and my reward is with me to give every man according to his works. You and I are going to be judged according to our works. Rewards are mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. He who works for God, motivated by love, will receive a rich reward. Beverly, help me prepare this sermon. Last night in my desperation, I was casting about for thoughts and like an angel of mercy, she came to me with some of her notes. Here they are. Some pay their dues when due. Some when overdue. Some never do. How do you do? Thank you, Beverly. <clears throat> Listen, here is a Beverly special. A man died and went to heaven. Get the picture. A man died. Where did he go? Amen. Haven't you been listening to my preaching? Amen. A man died and went to heaven. St. Peter escorted him past mansion after dazzling mansion, wonderful homes like in Beverly Hills until they came to a dilapidated shack at the end of the street. The man was stunned and said, St. Peter, why am I stuck with a run-down shack when all of these other people have mansions? Well, sir, replied St. Peter, we did the best we could with the money you sent us. <laughs> I want you to know today that the saints of God are going to get their reward. And God will do the best with the money you send him today. Don't forget it. Now what is more, there's something else we ought to do. We should do it now. As a pastor, I've counseled heaps of old beloved saints. And some of those old beloved saints are, for want of better words, the tightest I've ever met. I'm sorry that I lack the diplomacies of the American people. Here is a poem for you. The story of Jonathan Brown. I will tell you the story of Jonathan Brown the wealthiest man in Vanastor built town. He had lands, he had houses, and factories and stocks, good gilt-edged investments, as solid as rocks. Everything that I have, he so frequently said, shall belong to the Lord just as soon as I'm dead. So he made out his will with particular care, a few hundred here and a few thousand there. For the little home church in the village close by, he planned a new building with spire great and high and chimes to be heard for miles upon miles and deep crimson carpet all down its long aisles. For the pastor, <clears throat> a new home with rooms large and nice for the village library a generous slice. And then he remembered a college where young folks were taught the essentials of knowledge. 
the promised son of his very best friend to prepare for the ministry he planned to send. He'd pay for the board and his room and tuition, expecting the lad to fulfill a great mission. His pastor in old shoes, shabbiest raiment, suggested the Lord might enjoy a down payment and said it weren't smart to do business that way. I'd end in the poorhouse for certain, he said, if I give up my money before I am dead. He grumbled because the good preacher had been rash and sat down again to figure his cash. Now, Satan stood by with a devilish grin. So all that old Jonathan had to put in. Mm-hmm, said the devil, concealing a smile. I'll see that this old fellow lives a long while. So Satan chased off every menacing germ and sprayed with Helseptic each threatening worm until not a disease could get near Brother Brown and his excellent health was the talk of the town. He survived epidemics of flu and of measles, of smallpox, diphtheria, Bavarian teasels. He escaped the distress of acute appendicitis. He couldn't have so much as old tonsillitis. At 60, he still was quite hearty and hale. At 70, he hadn't started to fail. At 80, his step was still youthful and spry. At 90, his nieces said, why don't he die? But the day after he was 102 and Satan weren't looking, a germ wriggled through and laid Brother Jonathan low in his grave and uh, his relatives gathered in solemn conclave. Lawyer Jones read the will in a voice deep and round that there wasn't a legatee that could be found. The little home church he had loved in his youth had long since closed its doors and ceased spreading the truth. The pastor had died poor a long time before, and the village library existed no more. The college they found when they wrote was long ago sold on account of a note, and the boy that he planned to send off to school had grown up in ignorance, almost a fool, and had seven sons each one worse than the rest, and 11 grandchildren, the whole tribe a pest. So his ungodly relatives each took a slice, and his lawyers forgot and paid themselves twice. And there wasn't a friend, and there wasn't a mourner, not even the paper boy down at the corner. And Satan still smiled, turned to tasks, fresh and new, muttered, Brother, let this be a lesson to you, wagged his fingers, and spat as the casket went down. And thus ended the story of Jonathan Brown. Now, my beloved people, don't say you're going to do it at some other time. Do it today. This 
is an appeal not just from my heart, but from, a, from the word of the living God to come to higher ground and to put your time and your talents and your abilities and your money into the kingdom of God. And thus, you will be in harmony with the words of the Lord when he said, lay not up treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there are no moths, where there is no corruption, and you will be part of the kingdom of God, and you will have, by the grace of God, a mansion in glory. Amen. Amen. I want you all to kneel. Please, let's pray. Dear Father, today we've heard your voice talking to our hearts. This is the word of God. Help us to realize that Christ held back nothing for us. Teach us to fall in love with him and save us from the awful sin of pious religiosity whereby we think that when we've come to church and occupied a pew, we've done our duty. Oh God, forgive us for being such religious humbugs if we think that. Help us to realize the greatest privilege is to be in church. We're not doing God a good turn. We don't owe him anything. But the greatest privilege is to serve him because we love him. Amen. Teach us today the story of the cross, that God's own son, the majesty of heaven, came down to this little hell hole and went through agony on a cross that we might be saved. Help us to realize that the disciples of Christ will be more than professors, but they will be builders of the kingdom and they will do whatever it takes to build the kingdom. And they will say, yes, I may be a minister, but my first duty is to build the kingdom. I may be a carpenter, but my first duty is to build the kingdom. I may be a doctor, but my first duty is to build the kingdom. I may be a housewife, but my first duty is to build the kingdom. I may be a secretary. I may be an office manager. I may be a business person. I may be an administrator. But I only do these things so that I can have the money to build the kingdom because I am a child of God. Amen. Write this upon our hearts today. Oh God, stir these souls. As we're praying today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in the presence of the judge of all the earth who himself gave himself on the cross to atone for our sins. How many will say today, out of love and gratitude, I will commit myself today with everything that is within me to build the kingdom. Would you raise your hands? If you can give that sort of commitment to Christ today, lift up your hand high. Let God know, God, 
I am responding. I'm going to be the person that you want me to be. Dear Father, take these upraised hands, these upraised hearts. We are committing ourselves to you to build the kingdom. I thank you for Shondor, my right-hand man, who travels 400 miles today, not because he's getting paid, because he's not, but he does it because he loves God and he's building the kingdom. Thank you that you've given me a family who are building the kingdom. Thank you that you've given me a team that stand around me who will go beyond five o'clock and six o'clock and seven o'clock and they'll do whatever it takes to build the kingdom. And thank you that we have elders and deacons in this church who are rock solid and true and faithful like Javier who will be there whatever happens because he's helping to build the kingdom. Bless all of our church members and give us today our Father a mighty spiritual awakening that we will make Christ first and last and best in everything. For Jesus' sake, amen.